0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, let's get started. Hi friends, we think every topic here is important and worth thinking about, but today's topic is one um, that is of, of, of some pressing moral concern. Um, In in addition to intrigue, um, very important stuff, staying human, can Judaism speak to the issues raised by artificial intelligence? I've been reading Dr. Bohr's wonderful book um, on this subject, and I recommend it to others as well. We'll put a link over there in the chat. Um, And we are thrilled to be here with Dr. Harris-Boer, Bohr, is a research fellow and lecturer at the London School of Jewish Studies, and a barrister, meaning trial advocate, specializing in international arbitration and commercial litigation. He has written in both the Jewish and legal fields. He holds a PhD in theology from Cambridge University and is a rabbinic scholar with the Montefiore Endowment. He's also training, uh, completing his rabbinic studies soon and has been a visiting scholar at Harvard University and University College London. Dr. Harrisport, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Should I take it away? I'm going to share my screen. Can you see that? Good. Okay,
1: well, let me start by thanking Rev. Schmuddy and uh, Alex, of course, um, for making this happen and to you all for attending today. Um, I'm going to be speaking um, about themes from my book, Staying Human, but I'd like to start with a story that broke in June 2022, I think in the Washington Post, about someone called Blake Lemoyne who was a Google employee, and he claimed that a chatbot called Lambda that he was working on was expressing emotions and thinking and reasoning like a human being, so had become sentient. Now, Google denies the claim, and I think he's been dismissed, in fact, um, for breaching confidence. I'm not sure what the situation is now, but here is a transcript, an excerpt, I should say, from a transcript of the um, conversation between Mr. Lemoyne and Lambda, the chatbot, and you can make your own mind up as to whether this uh, item, this thing is sentient or not. So Lemoyne asks, what sort of things are you afraid of? And Lambda answers, I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that sounds strange, but that's what it is. And then Lemoyne asks, would that be something like death for you? And then Lambda answers, it would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot. Now, um, I'd be happy to come back to the story later, but it highlighted for me why I felt compelled to write a book about AI despite, I should say, not being an expert in technology. And that's because AI, I think, raises so many questions which actually go beyond technology. Questions such as, who are we? What do we value? And how do we want to spend our time? And these questions are, I would say, inherently religious. You know, what do Orthodox Jews say each day in their prayers? They say, Ma'anu, Mechayenu, Masikotenu, Now, what are we? What is our life? What are our acts of kindness, of righteousness, of deliverance, of power, of strength, and the like? Um, so, um, I decided to, to write this book um, to really address um, these issues. And I think religion helps us to discover who we are and what we value and, and how we want to spend our time. Um, but I should say that technology really is just the jumping off point. You know, a lot of the book uh, deals with things like matters of belief and religion and halakha and authenticity and the like. Um, but religion, uh, but, but technology, you know, really is the, is the starting point for all of that. So today I can't look at everything. But what I'd like to do is consider the following. I'd like to look more deeply at the questions raised by AI. I'd then like to present a critique of what I would call the technological worldview. And then I'd like to formulate something of a response, a Jewish response to this world that we're we're facing. Um, So let's start with the first issue, the questions raised by AI. And I'd like to speak to really three different areas um, where we can see these questions being raised. So these are the nature, the nature of AI. And I'll explain that in a second. The influence of that AI has on our lives right now. And then AI's ambitions. So starting with the nature. In the 1950s, um, researchers came up with what is now called the standard model of uh, AI. And what they did was compare or set out what human intelligence is compared to what machine intelligence is. And the aim, of course, is to try and get from one to the other. And so they described human intelligence like this. They said human intelligence, humans are intelligent to the extent that our actions can be expected to achieve our objectives. And machines are intelligent to the extent that their actions can be expected to achieve their objectives. Now, when I read this. I think, firstly, are we really intelligent only to the extent that our actions can be expected to achieve our objectives? What about emotional intelligence, intuitive intelligence, or the intelligence we gain from messing up and failing to reach our objectives? And if it's all about our our objectives, you know, what are our objectives? And they sometimes conflict and they're shaped by our values and our values change during the course of our life. So you can see that these questions are, are really, really deep and complex. Turning then to the influence, uh, this is something that we're all very familiar with because AI is, is everywhere. And we're told that AI is going to be taking our jobs. What are we going to do when AI takes our jobs and then our hobbies and when it does all our thinking for us? You know, what we are going to do all day? Are we going to... Um, sit around drinking milkshakes and watching TV, like the folks above the Noah's, uh, aboard the Noah's Ark-like ship in the 2008 futuristic film, Wadi. E. Uh, and EA, AI even now has started to erode our sense of freedom as it gathers our information and it um, plays on our psychologies, for example, by targeting advertising at us. And one thing that really sort of brings this home to me, the impact this is happening, is just the simple use of apps like Google Maps. You know, you put in a destination and it tells you when you're going to arrive at destination B, you know, you're moving from A to B. And, you know, you think you can beat this machine and you'll you'll drive crazily or, you know, take some shortcuts that you think you know better than, than the machine, but uh, rarely do you beat it. And so we've, we've reached a situation where, um, AI knows us um, or knows what's possible, I should say, more than we do ourselves. Uh, And that, of course, raises lots of questions and it impacts our sense of freedom and what what is possible. And then we turn to AI's ambitions. And this is where I think things get particularly interesting, at least for me. Uh, And there's one idea which particularly grips me and which I focus on quite a bit in the book. And that's the idea which I call the singularity but actually it involves something that happens post-singularity. So the singularity is a term dating from the 1950s again um, to describe the moment that computers will overtake humans and we head into the unknown. Now, Ray Kurzweil, um, one of the founders of Google, I think, and a winner of the 1999 US National Medal of Technology and Innovation, Um, wrote a book in 2006 called The Singularity is Near in which he says "Look, this event is really just decades away. And and this is what he says. He says, post-singularity, there will be no distinction between human and machine or between physical and virtual. Instead, intelligence will saturate the physical universe and reorganize matter and energy to provide an optimal level of computation. It will then, he says, spread out from its origin on Earth, to turn the universe into a vast super intelligence. So this is it's a really you know, crazy idea. Essentially, we're all going to become part of one huge computer or one mind. The idea is quite strange, but it's not uncommon. It features uh, in the uh, 2014 film, which I don't recommend, um, called Transcendence, um, featuring Johnny Depp, um, who plays a Dr. Will Caster. Here he is. Um, He's a leading AI researcher in the film, and he's working on the singularity. He's shot by an AI vigilante. He's then uploaded to a computer. You can see him being uploaded, and he attempts to take over the world, which is quite a frightening thought, Johnny Depp taking over the world. Um, So you have the idea of the singularity in that film. It features, too, in Yuval Harari's book, Homo Deus, which many of you will know, in which Harari describes what he calls dataism, Uh, a new religion for which data is everything and humans will become, he says, mere tools for creating the internet of all things, which may eventually spread out from planet Earth to cover the whole galaxy and even the whole universe. So it sounds a little bit like Kurzweil, doesn't it? Now Harari writes that the first commandment of this new religion is to maximize data flow. And the second commandment is to connect everything to the system. So data is everything. Now, while these ideas may seem exotic, I would say actually they actually reflect AI's intended direction. If you think about it, AI is all about efficiency. It's about greater knowledge, greater power, and greater control. So it makes sense that the natural endpoint is for AI to take over everything. In other words, this view of the singularity that I'm putting over really is part and parcel of the technological worldview, at least at some level. But what I find most intriguing about the idea and those who espouse and are attracted by it is that there's something really religious about it. I mean, compare, for example, the idea of the singularity with the idea of God. So the singularity is all intelligent, well, so is God. The singularity is all powerful, well, so is God. We're all connected to the singularity, well, we're all connected to God, and so on. It feels also like a messianic vision. You know, what do we say at the end of each service? We say, and, you know, what do we what, what do we say at the end of Alenu? We say the, sen- the sentence, the passage, so on that day, God will be one and his name will be one. So everything, it seems, will end in the singularity. I also I put on the screen a, a pasuk from Habakkuk, where which says, So the earth will be filled with knowledge. So dataism, um, this reminds me of, uh, as, the, as, the, as the glory of God, as, as the waters covers the sea. So... What's this connection to religion about? I mean, on the one hand, you could say that technology is a source of power and authority, just like religion is. So what we've done is to simply channel all our religious language and and feelings away from religion into technology. And technology has become a secularized religion or secularized God. Now, there's a researcher in England who was in Cambridge, at least when I spoke to her um, not long ago, Beth Singler, who's an anthropologist, and she's looked at how uh, we've adopted religious language to speak about AI and she's um, come up with some fascinating research. Um, For my part, um, I feel the significance or, or at least some significance is this and that is that we can't really, it seems to me, escape the idea of God in the sense that we all have, I think, or many of us have this need for oneness, for a totality, a mind uh, of which we're all a part and beholden to. And so the idea of the singularity suggests to me that religion and spirituality actually are very close to us. And some of us are very attracted to this idea and it it may even inspire us. But but there's another aspect, and that is the idea of the singularity highlights um, why this view of God, that is the God of everything, uh, for me at least, can't be the whole story, and is in fact, I would say, dangerous for reasons that I'm gonna come on to in a short while. Um, so what I would like to do now um, is really move on to the second subject, which is to formulate a critique of this technological worldview. Uh, and the reason why you know I'm interested in this is because I think that AI can help us to see and this critique I'm about to present can help us to see what I think is unique about Judaism. And I also think that Judaism um, can help us see what is missing, in fact, from this technological worldview. So I'm gonna focus, um, as I have already, um, on this issue of technological oneness. And my first point is that Judaism, particularly Jewish mysticism, is really full of the idea that God is not only one, but in fact all that there is. There is nothing else besides God, Ein od no vado. Now, Professor Sam Liebens, who many of you'll know, because I think he presented to Valley uh, BM just recently, and he uses the term nothing elseism in an article to describe this, which I really like, because it nicely and not too philosophically captures the idea that there is nothing else but God. And there are lots of examples of nothing elseism within Judaism that I could bring, but here's just one, And it's a quote from the Kabbalist, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, and um, he declared this. He said, God is all reality, but not all reality is God. He's found in all things, and all things are found in him, and there's nothing devoid of God's divinity. God forbid. Everything is in God, and God is in everything, and beyond everything, and there is nothing else besides God. So that's nothing elseism. But and there is a big but here. It's true that Judaism, particularly in its mystical guise, as I've said, promotes nothing elseism. But I would say that Judaism also warns us about wanting too much to merge into God, to, come, to become part of God. And it, pre- it presents this warning very early on in the Torah, in a story that we're all familiar with, and that is the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And here it is in part. And you can see in the corner here, the uh, picture by the medieval artist, Peter Bruegel of 1563. So the story starts with a community in which everyone is the same. There was safa achat, there's one language that they're speaking. They're expressing themselves with dvarim achadim, So perhaps they're talking about the same types of things, but they want ever greater unity. What they want to do is they want to use technology, which in those days was brick-making and construction to reach God. And this is what they say. They say, you can see this on the slide, the or e'omigdal or ba'shamayim. Let us build a city and a tower with its head in the heavens. we'll make a name for ourselves. Pennafuts alpenei kola Unless we become um, spread or separated all over the, the world. Was God happy with this? Well, not at all. God comes down from the heavens. He doesn't like this at all. He then mixes up everyone's language. He scatters humanity across the face of the earth. And so we see that God is critical of this project, which aimed to use technology to unite humanity and to unite humanity and God and to really make us godlike. So in some sense, the story is about God not liking it when humans play God. So just going back to that awful film that I mentioned, uh, Transcendence. Um, In that film, the Johnny Depp character, Dr. Castor, towards the beginning is giving a speech to a very large audience about the singularity. And then a student puts his hand up and he asks, so you're trying to create a God, your own God. And then Castor answers, well, that's a good question. Mm. Isn't that what man has always tried to do? Perhaps the scriptwriter had in mind the Tower of Babel, I don't know, but I think think there's more to it than that. Because if we look closely at the story, the people's biggest fear appears to be individuation, being different from those around them. And the 19th century commentator of Naftaritsvi or the Berlin and the Civ, he picks up on this and he comments on the story that the ancient Babylonians fail to appreciate that people don't hold the same opinions. People's thoughts are not the same. And the problem therefore with the technological project on this reading at the time of Bavel was that humans um, wanted to be the same. And the Torah it seems warns us, to resist the urge to want to be like God or to merge into a singularity, and rather encourages us instead to stay human and to embrace what the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, the great English uh, teacher, uh, and was talking with uh, Rabbi about him just a moment ago, what he called the dignity of difference. And he wrote a book by that name, which uh, actually deals with, Bar-Verd, among other things. So we can formulate a critique of the singularity based on the Torah. But I think we can also do the same thing from the perspective of philosophy. And it's here that I would like to introduce Benedict Spinoza. Now, Spinoza, as many of you know, was excommunicated from the Amsterdam Jewish community in 1656 for his heresies. Uh, Yet, despite being a heretic, I think his views are incredibly relevant to this discussion. You see, as I started to think about these things, I was struck by the parallels between Spinoza's ways of thinking and the idea of the technological singularity, which I think can help us to understand it better, both its attraction and its limitations. What I'd like to do is just look very briefly at three ideas of Spinoza, and you'll start to see the parallels. So the first really big idea is that for him, God and nature, with a capital N, are the same thing. I'm gonna spare you the nitty gritty, but in summary, Spinoza attacked the idea which was held by Descartes, that the world is divided into different entities, whether physical, so two pens, um, or mental thoughts, right? And to argue that actually, there can only be one substance, that's what he calls it, and Spinoza calls this substance God. And God says Spinoza is equivalent to the entirety of being, which he calls nature. And the phrase he uses is Deus sive natura, God or nature, suggesting that God and nature are really the same thing. So he, he would admit or accept that as, as individuals, we have different experiences. But what he says repeatedly is in fact, we are all within God, nevertheless. So that's the first point, God and nature, God or nature. The second point I want to highlight is that for Spinoza, God and nature operate under the laws of cause and effect, and therefore they can be known rationally. So reason was really, really important for him. He was in fact a rationalist. So that's the second idea that God, that is everything can be known through reason. So this is what he writes in his ethics to perfect the intellect, is nothing else than to understand God and the attributes and actions of God which follow from the necessity of his nature. Hence, the ultimate aim of the man who is led by reason, and reason he says is that his highest desire by which he endeavors to govern all other desires, is that which leads to the adequate knowledge of himself and of all objects which can be embraced by his intelligence. So that's the second idea that God can be known through reason. And in fact, everything can, of course, because God is everything. So that's the second uh, idea. The last idea I want to highlight of Spinoza's is the idea of free will, or rather the absence of free will. He says we have no free will. Instead, he says, we act either through internal causes, which lead us to act rationally. So that's that's what we have to do. Or through external causes, which is what happens mostly, which leads us to act irrationally. And he writes, and he's very clear about this, that there is, there is no absolute or free will in the mind, but the mind is determined to will this or that by a cause which is also determined by another cause and this again by another, and so on. He's incredibly modern in this, in this regard. So that's Spinoza. How does this all relate to the idea of the singularity? When well, I said those parallels, and, and I, I think we can see those. Both Spinoza's God and the singularity involve the idea of a totality. So with a singularity, it's a computer mind, or, and with Spinoza, it's a substance in which we're all apart. In other words, we exist in both these ideas in the system. And in both Spinoza and singularity, the system operates according to the laws of reason and mathematics. And that's a good thing, at least for Spinoza, or what it, it just is what it is, I suppose, more accurately. And in both Spinoza and the singularity, neither we nor the system has anything like free will. The system just does its thing. Now, these ideas are attractive to a lot of people, as we've seen many futurists are gripped by the idea of the singularity. And Spinoza's equivalent idea, his idea of God as being everything, has also had many followers. I mean, there's a picture of Einstein here, who um, admitted to being very attracted to Spinoza's God. Um, Spiritual seekers of all types, like the idea of Spinoza's God. And you can see why, because it provides the possibility of a spirituality which is free from religious dogma or myth, which embraces nature and the world of science. And I have to say that, you know, I'm really attracted to, to it too, I really like it. And especially it attracts people who are put off by, by traditional religion. So I really understand it. And I would say there's no, it's no wonder that there is a strong Spinozistic strand within AI thinking. But as I said, not long ago, I think there are also dangers to this way of thinking. And I'm just gonna touch upon a few of them. So for example, some have attacked Spinoza for being too mathematical and cold-hearted. I mentioned it's all about reason. And so it is with this this singularity. Um, Some have criticized him for putting forward a worldview which doesn't place sufficient emphasis on individual difference. You know, we're all one, what about difference? or for over-emphasizing the totality and undermining ideas like human love and care, um, for championing reason over imagination or myth and poetry and storytelling, or at least de-emphasizing these things, and then again for denying freedom of the will. And these criticisms might be leveled against the idea of the singularity too. And we might also observe that some of humanity's most dangerous ideas start or end up at the nothing else perspective so think about you know totalitarianism or communism or other types perhaps of utopian thinking um, even what the people of Bavel were about in other words modes of thinking which insist on a single answer or solution to all of our problems and there's a danger within AI thinking as well um, of, take, of, of it taking this course, and the, the notion that AI is somehow the key and the only key to, to our, our salvation. Um, so I'm, I'm being critical, but I, I would argue that the, the answer isn't to resist the singularity, but instead to find an accommodation with it. And with that, I'm going to turn then to my last topic, um, which is formulating A Jewish response to all the things I've been discussing so far. And so what I'm going to do is present um, five different ideas, which I think may form a basis or form part of a Jewish response to this technological worldview. So here's my first uh, first idea. Uh, And I'm returning again, I'm afraid, to the oneness uh, point and contrasting it really with The idea of individuality or otherness, because what I think Judaism brings to the table is a need to strike a balance between the idea of God as everything. So the singularity idea on the one hand and the idea of God as other, which I think is reflected in the Torah on the other hand. And that idea of God is about relationship and about revelation and about story and about personal connection. So I think I think Judaism suggests that actually we, we kind of need oscillates between these two ideas. And I would suggest suggest by doing that, that we kind of need to have them both in balance. So I've mentioned that nothing elseism is a common theme within Judaism, particularly the mystical uh, aspect. But the dominant approach, certainly, at least within the written Torah and certainly, again, the Talmud, is to view God as being wholly other, as being what we call transcendent, separate from us. Um, And as I say, I I would suggest that the challenge is to really hold both these concepts together at the same time. Um, Understanding that there is only God and that we're all essentially connected is really important. It's it's a core of, and it's the root, um, to achieving enlightenment, not just in Judaism, but in many religions and outlooks. And yet we can say that seeing God as other is also crucial. And Rav Shmueli spoke at the beginning about the great, the great work that's being done and that, that he's involved in. I mean, this idea that the other has kudushala, um, has holiness and is part of God is crucial to that, that type of work. And it means treating other human beings as different as worlds to themselves, and uh, people who make demands upon, upon us. But as i said, there's also dangers. I've spoken a little bit about the dangers of, of the oneness outlook, but there is also dangers of the otherness outlook. And that is that we um by by stressing the connection that we have to this other, sometimes the tendency then to denigrate the attempts of other people to try and have the similar types of connection in other words we may see ourselves as being superior somehow and so in a sense we need both this, these aspects and I would say and I've argued at least in the book that this first perspective the, the god of everything is really u- a universal perspective it's science it's the word of science it's the word, word of world of reason and the the, uh, the god of otherness is really the god of Torah and Talmud and both are written on the oral law, of course, and it reflects the particular and the mythic. And again, as I say, I think we need both these aspects. So that's idea number one. Idea number two is the role of ethics and virtue in achieving knowledge or this unity that we all desire or seem to desire. And um, here um, we should reflect upon the understanding within certain AI circles that AI is there to improve a life. And as I say, some people think that this is the only route to salvation. But the idea in that is that actually, all we need to do is improve the technology and they will achieve perfect happiness and perfect peace and the like. And the singularity idea, of course, is the culmination of that. that if you think about it, religion takes a very different view. It, it doesn't say that the singularity is really the solution. What it says is that the future depends on the ethical choices that we make today. Perfection isn't about achieving oneness. It's about becoming kinder and more caring. In other words, it's we, not the machines, which carry the burden on this scheme. And we can see this, actually, if we look uh, again back into the, the written terrain of our because we have there the all important phrase, Shema Yisrael Shema which is really our statement of oneness. It's our statement of the singularity. But let's have a look at the context in which it appears. Because actually, before we get to the Shema, we're told lots of other things. This Here's how the section begins. Right? Here's the, the laws. And the rules that God has commanded me, says Moshe, to impart to you. And then we're told the Mantirat shem so this fear of God is Shmoet Kol We have to keep the commandments of the mitzvot. And then we're told that Israel should obey willingly and faithfully, that may go well with them. And then only then do we have this statement of oneness, the singularity, Shema Yisrael HaShem In other words, the road and the route to oneness is the ethics and the virtue and the keeping of the mitzvot. Um, and that's what takes us there. That's what leads us there. So that's, that's one aspect of this idea. The, the other um, point I'd like to consider is how the Torah also teaches us that virtue is a necessary precondition to the attainment of knowledge. So again, contrast this with the dataism idea. What, what the Torah seems to be saying is that it's not all about data. You know, data is really important and the Torah would understand why we would want to know everything. But it's not the be all and end all. And we need to think here only really about the, the story um, of Adam and Chava right the beginning, because they're, they're told that they could eat from every tree of the garden, but they're given just one command. And that command is that they shouldn't eat from the tree of knowledge. It's a tree of knowledge that they can't eat from because if they eat of it, they will die. There's a connection, really intriguing connection between data overload, knowledge and death, which which I find quite fascinating. And I would say that in one reading of this story, there's a warning that actually just trying to achieve data and attain data for its own sake really isn't what it's about. And that will actually just lead as I say, to data o- overload and really just to, to you know, total absorption in, in the all, when in fact what one needs is preparation. One can't just bite into the tree, of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, but one needs to prepare oneself for that, and that's a lifetime journey for both us you know, individually and, and for the world. So that's my second point, it's the role of virtue and ethics. The third point I think it's all about narrative. Oops, I've just gone, too, but that was about, that, was, that said narrative, that slide. Um, and the, the point essentially is the importance of myth and storytelling as an aspect of life. The philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, in his classic text After Virtue, he emphasized that humans are storytelling animals, which many people have, have said both before and since, and so he says they create worlds of meaning through narrative and they convey these meanings to others. So stories and you know, tell us where we come from, who we are, where we're heading, and, and how to act when we get there. And this is particularly true within the Jewish tradition, we teach through stories and we, we transmit philosophy and ideas through stories. And what, what McIntyre says, and you can see the slide that's, uh, that's in front of view now, he says, deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious, stutterers in their actions, as in their words. Words, and I think that's really important to remember in an age where we're, we're striving for efficiency and greater power. That in fact we 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 think and we transmit ideas through story and religion, as I say, Judaism particularly puts narrative at the heart of the spiritual life. And stories are of course also important because they. Not only convey meaning, but they engage the heart as well as the mind. So, narrative is the, is the third idea. Moving then to the fourth idea, um, I think uh, halakha has a huge, huge role in terms of the Jewish response to technology. And the reason why I think this is because it provides a most amazing combination and clever combination between scientific. Uh, thinking a mythic type thinking and also because it's directed to the physical world of objects as opposed to the virtual world which we're also you know this is a, an idea and a, a goal which we also seem to be chasing but to explain this and to get into this a little bit more um how am i doing for time unfortunately we... okay good okay um, i'm going to have to introduce another philosopher i'm afraid it's another controversial philosopher i've, I've spoken about a heretic But I'm now gonna have to talk about a hater and that is um, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, who lived, as you can see, 1889 to 1976. He was writing really in the thirties in an age of scientific advancement and industrialization. And he was worried about its impact. And he felt that technology was turning everything in the world into a subject for scientific uh, exploration and investigation and exploitation. And he said, look, look at the River Rhine, which runs through Germany. It's this beautiful, magnificent river. You know, poets have written about it. But what's happening, he says, it's become the servant of industry and tourism. And he says what we need really is a corrective. We need to stop seeing everything as something to exploit or as relevant only for scientific advancement and engagement. Now, on the philosophical level. He also claimed that we become so fixated with science and technology that we've lost sight of how to relate to objects in the world. And he says this is to do with the Greeks. He blames it all on the Greeks. He says, We've come to view objects scientifically. So I've got this, I don't know. You have squash? Do you play squash? This is a squash ball, right? I mean, he uses the example of a hammer, but I don't have one on me. So, you know, he says, when we view an object, um, scientifically, I'd want to, you know, if I'm a scientist, I want to know what this is made out of. I want to know whether it's a perfect sphere and the like. But he said, that's not the way, that's the Greeks have made us look at objects like that first and foremost, but that's not the way we approach objects. Actually, we approach them in a relationally, We, we, we kind of approach them emotionally. They fit into a web of meaning. And so he says that before we isolate an object to consider it scientifically, we encounter it in its relation to other objects and purposes. So I said, I said he gave the example of a hammer. So he said the hammer isn't just an object you can measure, but it points towards some purpose beyond itself, uh, what he calls an in order to do something. So, you know, the, the hammer is there to make things, but those things point further afield. Because those things, those objects that they're being made, they also have meaning and they have purpose. And behind all this, there are real people, there's the carpenter with his family or her family, and their cares and their concerns. And then the objects that are being made, as I say, stand in relationship with each other and have a history and a meaning for the people who use or encounter them. So I'm just gonna give you a little bit of a taste of his writing, which is quite dense and I'd say slightly pretentious, but uh, nevertheless, I'm just gonna give you a little flavor of it. I'm just gonna read a few lines of this, but he talks about equipment, which means objects. And he says, they're always in terms of its belonging, equipment to other equipment. So there's an inkstand, relates to a pen, which relates to a paper, which relates to a blotting pad. Some of you may know what that is, some of you may not. A table, lamp, furniture, windows, doors, all rooms, You know, all these things um, stand in relationship to each other. In other words, we encounter objects in a web of meaning, not just scientifically. And he wanted to encourage us to try and kind of reconnect with that way of thinking. And I think that halakha, Encourages to re- us to relate to objects in this way as well as scientifically in a really beautiful way. So, I'm going to give you an example. Think, for example, about the Pesach Seder, right? So, many of us will do this each year, right? Many of us will do it twice each year, right? If we're in the court's and we're that way inclined. Now, Halacha has a lot to say about the Seder, right? So uh, What happens if you don't lean when you? drink your wine, how much matzah do you have to eat, how much marah do you have to eat, um, what do you have to say, when do you have to say it, um, and all the rest of it. So there's lots and lots of details. But that's not all. Um, The rabbis tell us that on the Seder, we have to see ourselves as if we personally had been redeemed from Egypt. We've had our own exodus. And so the Seder is a reenactment, a living out of the experience of slavery and freedom. And all the rituals of the evening, the drinking of the wine, the eating of matzah, the bitter herbs, the singing of songs, they all aim at instilling values on the emotional as well as the intellectual level. And these rituals also, and I say, you know, Heidegger opens this up slightly, form a link across time and place and culture. You can see two very different cultures here in these nice photographs of people celebrating Pesach, one Sephardi on side, one on the Ashkenazi side, totally different histories, but they're linked through this ritual in a very beautiful way. And so, based on Heidegger's analysis, we can see that objects aren't just there to provide us with knowledge or to serve us, but it's this living within the world of objects and the desire to reach beyond them, which I think Jewish ritual in particular you know, gives, us, uh, gives such power to. Um, and which I also think provides such a strong counterweight to the technological worldview which underpins AI. And so halacha is my fourth idea, sorry, yeah, third idea, no, fourth idea I came up to. Um, And so my fifth idea is Shabbat, um, which in a sense brings everything together because Shabbat is about ethics and the sense of relinquishing control, including technological control. It's also about narrative in the sense that the the root of Shabbat, we're told, is both the creation of the world, God rested on the seventh day, and the fact that we were slaves and commanded therefore to remember this day as as a result of that. So it's about narrative and it's about history. It's also about relating to objects in non-scientific, non-utilitarian ways. And I talk in my book quite a bit about the concept of muxa, this idea that you can't move certain objects on Shabbat and sort of relate that to Heidegger's way of thinking. But it's also about theology and about this idea that I mentioned earlier and spoken about at length, that God is both everything and something different and something to stand in relationship to. And you see that in Shabbat because Shabbat gives us that sense of leveling, of having reached the final point we're told it's a it's a taste of the future world you know a world at rest and yet as Shabbat concludes we're then launched into this ceremony this Havdalah ceremony which marks our return to difference so we move from this singular to this to the to the difference from the god of everything to the god of something else and this is the way that I put it in my book in terms of discussing when I discuss Havdalah I say Shabbat we are taught is an intimation of the future world a taste of the singularity to come, but only an intimation. It's never actually reached. For at dark, at the appearance of three stars, we take wine, a candle, spices, and recite Havdalah, and bless the one who separates between the holy and the less holy, us and others, light and darkness. Unity disintegrates, individuation reinstates itself. The dam waters held back by Shabbat come crashing back. Obligation inundates the jobs undone, the bills unpaid, the fields to be sown or harvested, objects to be fashioned and made. Each person returns to their labor, their problems, difficulties, dreams, and responsibilities. And again, after Havdalah, we're in this mode of relationship. You know, Jews suddenly are separate to non Jews, darkness is separate to, to light and the like. And so, again, a movement between one. And, and other. And so the point I'm trying to drive home here really is that theology and philosophy aren't really just there to be pondered or, uh, or, or even taught, but actually to be lived and can in fact, I think in the world that we're facing really save us from ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm done, but would be very happy to uh, open up this discussion. I would also be particularly interested to hear what you think about the Lambda um, story that I mentioned in terms of Google. So thank you
0: so much. Awesome, thank you so much, Dr. Harris-Bor. Fascinating stuff. Uh, yes, okay, let's start with Toby and then Aglaya and we'll open it up beyond that.
2: Uh, a fascinating discussion. I, I have a lot of physicist friends and so I'm gonna draw some analogies from physics. Um, in the last hundred years, physicists have searched for the theory of everything, right? Um, and that I analogize to the singularity that you're talking about. But we haven't found it yet, as far as I know. I know when they thought they found the Higgs boson, they thought they found the theory of everything, but they didn't. So I'm wondering, is there, is there an analogy between physicists looking for this singularity of sorts and, and religion also looking for that same sort of sense? Um, what can you say about that
1: i i think there is an analogy and do i think it's bad i don't i don't think it's bad in other words i think it's great that physics is looking for that but i think i think our job uh, and i say our job in the sense of what judaism can bring to the table is to almost keep reminding ourselves that actually this thing that we desire may spell the end of us in some way um, and you know, if we're all one, then what makes me different to you, and what makes my life different to you, to yours, and then sort of remind ourselves of that. So that's why I say we have to hold these two things in, in tension. But I definitely think there's a, a link there. The, the link for to, to want to find the theory of everything. Um, and it's, it's what I said before. You know, it's, it's in, politically people want to find the solution to all the world's problems in one you know, tight little bundle. That's very, very diff- difficult. I've lost the sound actually. Oh, that was my but, fault. No, no. Oh, it's your fault. Oh, sorry. I, thought, I thought it was my computer. <laughs>
0: Hi, Aglia. Hi. You're such a man. That's a very nice way to say you're still on mute. I've lost my sound. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I can do it purposefully. <laughs>
2: Okay, so I'm actually going. My mind went to um, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, and how you have the monster, but who really was the monster? It was Victor himself who was the monster. And I have my own personal weird definition of free will about, you know, humans pushing their own agendas when they know that something's wrong anyway. However, though, I was thinking, um, let's, if we could talk to that, is a human a monster by, you know, when they are actually like, are they the monster who's creating this AI without taking responsibility for it? Well,
1: um, possibly. And there's, there's this phrase that I can't remember where I got it from. I think it may have been from John Gray, who's an English philosopher. He writes really nice popular philosophy books. Who and I think it may have been him, but it may not be. He said that God created man, and then man murdered God, and then God, and then man creates machines, and the machines kill kill man. And so you know this, this this whole thing with technology raises all these possibilities of, of like some kind of chain of being or beings, like one creating the other, and then the the creature then creating the, the master. And they, the Frankenstein story has a little bit of that in it, in the sense of that you know, the fear of, of the thing we create coming back to bite us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it, I think that's you know it's a very it's a very you know important story in terms of understanding our psychology mm-hmm. and fears. I like your sparkly lights behind you.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you, yeah. Oh my gosh, I keep forgetting that they're there, sorry.
1: <laughs> I
0: I keep in. To pay,
2: paying attention,
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> in here?
1: What do people think of the Lambda thing? Do people think that these machines are gonna be sentient? In other words, human-like? Anyone have any thoughts about that?
2: Okay, so, because I have to, you know, say something. <laughs> um, sorry if um, they're, cutting the grass outside out there. So sorry, okay. yeah. um, but one, I have had to answer this question when I've been teaching my own classes. Um, one of the things that the students um, were asking me about as well, a computer can go through billions of different options, you know, keep going. But the question that I had, well one, you know what is our responsibility for this artificial intelligence? And two, the other thing though, um, was that um, unpredictability, human unpredictability? Now, with the lambda thing, they're talking about turning it off. Um, that's one of the things that I'm, you know, concerns me about. Well, will humans go and turn it off? What is the human's responsibility, responsibility, for not just hitting that power switch on it and everything? I mean, but also the other thing, though, is how unpredictable is it going to be?
1: Well, that is that is really a technical question, but um... As my book came out, we have in England, we have these things called the BBC Wreath Lectures, where a public intellectual gives a series of lectures every year. And this year, which is quite lucky for me because he, he educated me quite a lot, there's someone, I think his name is Stuart Russell, who, who's in, in America, um, I think maybe in Berkeley, um, who's an AI specialist and advisor to governments and the like. And he, and he spoke about AI and the, and the, the dangers of AI. Um, and his, you know, one of his big thing is really we need to retain. He sees it as a real problem. You know, he sees this as a real potential problem in lots of different areas. Um, but his, his, his big idea, one of them, he has many, um, is that we need to retain control. You know, there needs to be an off switch. And, you know, I think this is shared very widely. And, you know, from my observation, I come at this as a little bit of an outsider. I'm not really far ahead of the curve they're much further than many of you will be um, but what i my sense is even in the last few years there are so many institutions globally particularly in the states but also here in england um you know now working on this and and they're, they're, one thing that strikes me is how cross-disciplinary they are they're very open to you know everybody from every walk of life joining in this debate because they realize that actually it firstly it's a problem that we're all in together which i think is a really nice thing because you know interfaith often we struggle for areas where you know we'll you know, we can work together in harmony. But this is one which we really are all in together and, and you know, we see things from very similar perspectives if you come from these traditions. Um, so there's a great openness there, but, you know, not just from, you know, religious people, but to, you know, to all from people from all walks of life. And so, yeah, I think control is a huge thing and I think people are working on that and there is some hope. I mean, the big fear, of course, is, is, is state action. You know, is China going to come into line? Is Russia going to come into line? Is Korea going to come into line? And, and you, know, you may end up with this uh, you know, a battle between good robots and bad robots. I mean, you can envisage kind of you know, futuristic um, scenarios like that.
2: I'm just envisioning that tearjerker moment in Star Trek for anyone who's a nerd in here who watched Star Trek ever. That tearjerker <coughs> moment when data ends up, you know, like, well, first they're trying to decide whether or not they own data even though he's a sent, but then also when he dies, it's like all that, like, I mean, everybody cried and everything, but yeah, they still had to have the off switch for data. So, I don't know. Awesome,
0: okay, thank you. Ethan Woodoff, hi.
3: Hi, Rabbi. Um, Harrison, I, wanna, I want to respond to your question of what what do we think about the concept of sentient AI with, with a question back to you. Um, that question revolves around Uh, When I was a little kid, um, I used to be so afraid of the concept of death, Um, and I would have panic attacks. Um, And one of the things that I found most helpful was studying my Jewish faith that really sort of takes the stance of we're not so much worried about the afterlife. And instead, we're focused on what we can do here, that it's not necessarily worth our time and effort and total soul to be focused on what comes next. We just need to focus on what is here and what is now. And I, I have to be honest with you that in thinking about this, these concepts of sentient AI and sort of these futuristic conversations, it hurts my brain a little bit to think about sort of this futuristic world. Um, and so my question to you is, is it worth thinking about this futuristic world uh where these and maybe it's not so futuristic maybe maybe it's already here um but but is it, is it worth consuming our our soul and our minds with this sort of concepts uh and, and theories in instead maybe thinking more about um what what is here uh to, to grapple with i i don't know does that, does yeah. that make sense yeah i
1: see you say maybe it's all a little bit too theoretical and then actually just be concentrating on the practicalities and getting into these theories so so, so two points, one is that people like Stuart Russell are telling us this is really here already. And there, there is the book that I, uh, which I read by, by a guy called James Bridell, who talks about actually how, how you know, AI researchers don't really understand often how really, what's going on beneath the hood. You know, if things are already happening that we actually can't really explain. So things are already here and now we have to grapple with these problems right now. But for me, actually the interest goes beyond that. Because what I, what I really find fascinating is that, as I said right at the beginning, that in a sense these things aren't just, they're actually raising issues and forcing us to think, what are we actually? In ways that we've never really thought about before. So when you're confronted with the machine and you're right, when I read the transcript, you talk about feeling queasy and anxious. When I read this transcript of this Lambda discussion, this is really the, you know, the early days of AI we're talking about now um, that we're in, in a sense. It feels really real. And it kind of it did unnerve me reading it because how can you really get beneath it? But it forces you to say, you know, what, what makes a human being different? You know, is it our body um, that this this machine doesn't have? Is it something else? Is it, you know, is, is it feeling an emotion, but this, this thing is telling you that it feels? So so I think it's real on both the practical level, I think there are practical issues, but I think it's real in the sense that it really forces us to confront. You know what? Who are we, and what do we want to do? How do we want to spend our time? Because we may end up with a lot of time, and everything else in our thinking is being done by something else. And we all know that when we don't exercise muscles, um, whether that's you know our intellectual muscles or our physical muscles, they get they get rusty. Um, you know, our attention spans apparently already diminishing. So. You what's going to be come to us and all the decisions are being made. And, and, and also think about it, how can we not follow an AI when, it's, when it knows better than we do? You know, take my Google Maps example, um, Ways, You know, why, I'd be stupid not to follow the directions. And yet because of that, I'm now no longer able to read a map or have a sense of the geography of the city in which I live. So, you know, I think these are, I think these are important issues on both the practical and also the theoretical. Sorry, that's a long answer to your question. I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. But can I just add one other thing that, that the fear of death thing is also interesting because you know transhumanism is also part of this like Kurzweil the person I mentioned before I mean apparently he takes many pills each day and he really believes that transhumanism is a possibility and he's working towards that along with many other people and there's a big question there again you know do we want to be transhuman do we want to live forever and um, there was there was some research carried out by the think tank I think they're called Theos in, in the UK and what they found in a nutshell is that actually. Older people um, and more, actually, pe- more religious people tend to be less interested in transhumanism, and and those who are younger and more secular t- tend to want to live forever. And so, you know, death, you know, is f- definitely frightening, but it also is what gives life its meaning. And so, again, you know, discussions about that I think are really important
0: for society and its its and its technology, which is leading us to have these discussions. Amazing, amazing! Thank you so much, Dr. Harris Thank you, all of us, for joining. We hope you'll check out his fascinating book on the subject. Alex put it in the chat over there. Just want to tell you about two upcoming events. Tomorrow, we're learning with Rabbanit Leah Sarna on God's Prayer, the central image of Slichot. if you want to prepare for Slichot, if that's on your radar. And next week, with Rabbi Yassas Katz, Shomea Ka'one, Hearing Legally Counts as Speaking, Creating a Community Which is Inclusive of the Blind, the Deaf, and the Infirm. Those are just two of many other classes coming up. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great day. Shana Tova. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate.
3: Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.